Hello, coming to you from New York City, this is Disaster Politics, the podcast that explores the intersection of policy and legislation with disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. I'm your host, Jeff Slegamelch. everyone for joining us today on Disaster Politics Podcast. I know it's been a while. We've had a, a good chunk of a pandemic occur since last time we connected, but I uh, hope everyone is doing well. Hope you and your loved ones are safe and uh, and getting through this, and, and hopefully we'll see some light at the end of the tunnel here as we get into spring and summer and see more of these vaccines roll out. But today we're going to talk about a different topic. We're going to talk about immigration and when immigration and and issues along the border um, becomes a disaster. So we've seen recently the deployment of FEMA and the deployment of other aspects of our emergency management apparatus being deployed to the southern border in the United States due to an influx uh, of migrants and in particular um, unaccompanied minors. So uh, joining us today is Dr. Erwin Redliner, who's going to help us understand the context of, of what's going on with this, what makes it a disaster, what the larger issues are, and what are some of the key differences in the way this has been looked at and treated across different administrations in the United States. So it's uh, going to be a really, really great discussion. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, thank you all for joining, as always, and uh, sit back, relax, and we'll see you on the other side. Joining me now is Dr. Erwin Redliner, a senior research scholar and director of the Pandemic Resource and Response Initiative at the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University's Earth Institute. Uh, Dr. Redliner founded the center in 2003 and served as its director until very recently in the summer of 2020. He's the author of The Future of Us, What the Dreams of Children Mean for 21st Century America and Americans at Risk, Why We Are Not Prepared for Mega Disasters and What We Can Do Now. He's also the president emeritus and co-founder of the Children's Health Fund, which is a philanthropic initiative created to develop healthcare programs in some of the nation's most medically underserved communities. In addition to these specific uh, accolades, he's also been a lifelong children's advocate, both domestically in the US as well as internationally and at the forefront of a lot of our, our uh, humanitarian uh, disaster and healthcare policy. So Erwin, thank you so much for, uh, for joining the podcast. I, I can't believe we haven't had you on already, but uh, um, Great to have you here. Well, it's my pleasure, Jeff, and uh, it's actually been a great pleasure just working with you for all these years now, and uh, so glad you were able to take over responsibilities of directing uh, NCDP, but uh, I'm very happy to be talking to you. Wonderful. I appreciate all of that. Um, so actually, I, I wanted to start out um, really by talking about uh, this, this issue of uh, the immigration crisis and unaccompanied children at the border. And I know this is something you've been involved with for a while. And a lot of folks may be thinking, you know, is this a disaster? Uh, is this about immigration policy? But I think what we've seen under the Trump administration and now is a lot of our disaster management apparatus, FEMA, the Health and Human Services has been leveraged to help with this crisis. So uh, stepping back a little bit, can you help frame this for us, help us understand uh, like what's going on here? Yeah, so, you know, the first thing, Jeff, is um, what we actually mean by when we say something is a disaster. I mean, our, the namesake for the, uh, the organization that, that we uh, work with National Center for Disaster Preparedness, we're obviously thinking about this all the time. I think the first thing that 
comes to mind when people hear about our center is, uh, you know, we're talking about natural disasters, uh, coastal storms and uh, earthquakes and, and uh, the kind of events that we're used to having, including uh, things like uh, major uh, wildfires that we've seen out west. And also, of course, terrorism, terrorist events. But I think if we pull back a little, we can also understand that uh, any kind of situation, political, economic, or otherwise, that causes a uh, significant amount of human suffering uh, could also be easily fit in under the umbrella of disasters, which is why uh, the crisis that we're seeing down on the border, which is not new, by the way, uh, which even precedes the Trump administration, which made the worst of this situation, um, we have seen for 20 years uh, at least challenges of uh, having to help and process people who are trying to get to the United States from other countries. Um, and what this means is that we have some people that are applying through the usual channels to get uh, asylum in the United States and many, many people are coming here unauthorized, just sort of streaming across the border. In February, we had 100,000 people coming across the border, plus thousands of unauthorized, unaccompanied minors. Um, and um, we never have had, at least in modern times, the facilities to care properly. Uh, for unaccompanied minors, this means teenagers who are coming across the border without family members, and they're coming across illegally. The idea is that they are to stay or they can stay in detention centers run by Border Patrol for up to 72 hours, but then they're supposed to be moved out to facilities managed by Health and Human Services where they can be cared for properly, comprehensively, humanely, and then from there on to uh, long-term placements. The problem is that every part of this chain of movement of unauthorized, unaccompanied minors is overwhelmed with numbers, all of which, by the way, exacerbated by the presence of COVID. So a facility to manage intermediate term uh, shelter needs, uh, which may have had, let's say, a capacity of 500, now has a capacity of 250 because of COVID concerns. So COVID has simply exacerbated a longstanding problem. Um, I first started getting actively interested uh, with a lot of consequences, good, good and bad for me, was uh, in May of 2018, when then uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, uh, spurred on by uh, a, uh, Stephen Miller, a, an immigration advisor to Donald Trump, decided that they wanted to disincentivize people from coming across. So they started uh, actively, prospectively, separating uh, children, including toddlers and young kids from their parents and putting these children into separate detention facilities, which were absolutely gruesome and they wanted to brag about it. So there was a lot of stories out there and images of children living in what for all intents and purposes were uh, cages. And I ended up visiting the border and many of these detention facilities uh, uh, a couple of years ago and was deeply chagrined. Really, as a pediatrician, as a grandfather, it was just awful to see. They were, in fact, cages, at least they, that's what they look like, and children were suffering. And I started writing about this in the Washington Post and elsewhere, 
about this being child abuse by government. So fast forward to now, and we have President Biden now trying to cope with the same pressures uh, as Trump was, except instead of using cruelty as government policy, they're trying to figure out humane ways to discourage immigration for the moment. And uh, the people that do get across, including unaccompanied minors, trying to make sure that they are uh, staying in facilities that are giving them proper attention and care. But it is really a major problem, mm -hmm. Jeff. Yeah. So I, I know you mentioned that you had the opportunity to actually visit some of these facilities. Um, I, I know in our conversations, you had a chance to talk with some of the folks who had, had come across and were in these facilities. I'm curious what your thought is. So I, I can sense a lot of people are probably saying, well, disincentivize it, make it cruel so people don't choose to cross over the border. I'm not saying it's my perspective, but, but knowing uh, the conversations you've had with folks, uh, is that a disincentive. Uh, do you think that would actually prevent people from coming across uh, ethics aside for a moment? Well, that's a really good question, Jeff. And the reality is that I ended up speaking to maybe uh, 40, 40 plus uh, women who had been separated from their children who were in also in a detention type of facility in El Paso. It was actually a facility run by ICE. And it was, it was a basically a prison. There's no other way to put it. There's, you know, barbed wire, you know, surrounding the, uh, the facility and the, uh, everything in there was, uh, I mean, it was just a prison. Um, and I asked them if they were, if they knew what they were facing when they got here, including the separation of their kids, would they have still come to the United States, uh, you know, in an unauthorized, illegal way? And secondly, would now they're here, and if they had an opportunity to speak to their neighbors and friends, would you tell them not to come based on what you're experiencing? 100% of these women said they would come again and they would not discourage their friends and neighbors uh, to try to make the, the journey. And the reason is they were coming from uh, these communities in what's called the uh, Triangle Northern Triangle countries of uh, Central America, El Salvador, uh, Honduras, and Guatemala, in from communities and neighborhoods that was that were extremely violent, where there were major humanitarian abuses, um, and it was so dangerous that they felt their lives and the lives of their children, frankly, were were so threatened on a daily basis that it would be worth the risk of making the journey and worth whatever adverse, uh, adversities they have to deal with once they got here. That was eye-opening. Absolutely, and, and uh, I, I think just such an important point too to kind of think of all these driving factors, right, of folks uh, with immigration. You know, um, I, I definitely wanna come back to this a little bit too in the context of climate change. Um, you know, we heard last year about children dying in custody um, and uh, I know in some of your visits down there, you were able to kind of see firsthand some of the pressures that a lot of these uh, law enforcement officers with Border Patrol and elsewhere were under. Um, yeah. But, but wh why, why do you think this was happening? Why, why were children's lives put in danger while, while in custody? Or, or what do you think some of the, the, what was behind that? Well, you know, this was a, it's a very complicated situation. So Border Patrol agents have a job to do which is a legitimate job, which is to make sure uh, the borders of the United States are intact and that there's some control over people 
coming across as immigrants. Uh, we have a system theoretically on the books for people who seek asylum here. Uh, that system is totally overwhelmed. It's not working very well, really, it's just taking way too long. And people are feeling lots of dangers and uh, lots of threats. And uh, it's very hard to stop this. And we haven't been able to stop this under any recent administration. You know, from back in Clinton days to uh, Bush, Obama, and uh, the Bushes, Obama, and now Joe Biden, they just keep coming because the situation they're running from is too dangerous. But when they get here, the situation is very unstable in the sense that we don't know how quickly we can get kids out of the system into good placement or families for that matter. And the healthcare being provided uh, is very sketchy because uh, for one thing, the border patrol is not a health agency. ICE is uh, you know, not a health agency either, but they have a pretty good uh, you know, medical system or at least better than uh, the border patrol. And uh, a lot of times, you know, children will get sick, let's say, and we had six or seven deaths while in detention of uh, children. Kids will get sick. Uh, Border Patrol really would not know what to do with them. And uh, they would do kind of the best they can, let's say in some cases, but often they would depend on local healthcare system outside the uh, federal system, but they, you know, in the local communities. And I'll tell you, and you know, some of the smaller uh, communities in Southern uh, Texas, Arizona, California are not so great. These are, they're often hospitals without pediatricians uh, and let it, let's just say far from the best quality of care, but they would get taken there by border patrol, get lousy care and come back and still be sick and, or, you know, and not do well in the system or they wouldn't get taken at all. And then by the time they were noticed to be very sick, they would uh, not be able to survive. So it's a sketchy system, not designed to deal with this kind of uh, challenge. And there you have it. We have uh, you know, ready-made uh, situation that, that could be extremely risky to the health and well-being of children. Not to mention, by the way, the psychological impact on kids who have been separated or kids <coughs> who get sick in a system that they don't have any understanding of how it works. Absolutely, yeah. So, so I wanna rewind a little bit back to the Trump administration, the sort of at the peak, a lot of these issues and, uh, and actually uh, talk to you a little bit about, so, so you, you've been a very, very outspoken critic of the Trump administration, um, including you know, at the time that these things were happening. Uh, and yet uh, you found yourself for a brief period actually working for and with the administration um, yes. working yeah. to resolve these. So <laughs> I wonder uh -huh. if you could talk a little bit about that. Um, and um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, no, I, I got some explaining to do here. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, let's yeah. hear it. <laughs> so, um, so actually I was very active writing and talking out against the administration about these very specific issues, including uh, deaths of children while in custody and uh, the lack of attention and the, and the cruelty of the policies. So I get a call one day from an old colleague uh, who had been a senior official at the uh, Department of Homeland Security during the Obama administration. And uh, she told me that um, she was friends with the leader of the uh, Customs and, and Border Patrol Agency, which oversaw all of this. 
And they were actually interested in talking to me about what they could do. This particular guy there named John Sanders, a wonderful guy who found himself uh, running this agency that was under so much criticism. And basically, he was interested in, in getting my input about what they could do to make it safer uh, for children. And I went down and met with them. And that led to my being hired as a temporary uh, employee, part-time of the Customs and Border Patrol uh, Agency. And I had a specific job there, which was to help them figure out some protocols that could make it safer for children uh, who are inadvertently caught up in this you know, terrible system. So I went there and I, uh, with John's consent, I wrote a bunch of protocols for how Border Patrol, when they detain children, uh, how they could do it as safely as possible and making sure that if there were medical issues, they could get kids into custody. But keeping in mind too that the Border Patrol's job was to stop people coming illegally across the border. That's their job. They would, they would stop busloads of people being set up by, you know, organized crime that were being paid a lot of money to bring families. So they have a, uh, a busload or two of people uh, detected coming across the border and two o'clock in the morning, Border Patrol will go out, usually one or two agents. They had no idea who was on this bus. It was quite dangerous. They were alone in the, you know, in the middle of nowhere and had to, you know, screen people, take them into custody, make sure that nobody dangerous was on, on the bus, so on. And they were very reluctant to get labeled or given responsibility to do any kind of medical assessment for children. It wasn't their job. So I, I drafted some very, very simple uh, steps to make sure that there weren't very sick children, children needing medical attention right away in their midst that wouldn't be uh, too complicated to do and allow them to do their primary job. So I developed those protocols and tried to get them adopted by Border Patrol, which never happened. I also developed a bunch of uh, protocols that would uh, guide how children were being treated once they were in actual detention facilities, you know, like no more cages. And by the way, these cells that the children were in, including very young uh, toddlers, had, you know, one single thin mattress on the floor with a mylar blanket, no toys, no books, no nothing, uh, and, you know, chicken wire and, you know, uh, contained uh, containment areas. And it was pretty gruesome. And I tried to make changes and all that. I spent six months with them and was unfortunately decidedly unsuccessful. They gave me a lot of lip service. I developed the protocols. They lingered there and then I left uh, six months later. A number, um, sorry, you know, a number of the folks who, uh, the leadership who brought you over had also resigned prior to- Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it, was, it was a chaotic mess there actually. But at the end of the day, I, I stuck with it, really having all kinds of, crises of conscience, whether I should leave and not try to keep pushing for better conditions or stay and, and keep up the fight. And this was, this was a heavy duty decision for me and it was, did not go well with my colleagues at Columbia. I mean, there was 300 faculty members who sent a petition around that, that I was uh, cavorting with the enemy, so to speak, and working with the you know, Trump administration and Students were up in arms, so it was like not comfortable. 
on my home turf there. And uh, I would have done it again, I must say, Jeff, because, you know, I, I was really committed to try and help those kids, but it became clear to me it was just absolutely impossible under the Trump administration. Yeah, yeah. And no, I recall too, and in full disclosure um, for folks listening, um, at the time, you know, uh, Erwin and I were both discussing this at length in terms of the role of the center and and the pressures with uh, within Columbia. I think within within our home department, we had a tremendous amount of support, but obviously a number of students and faculty were very upset at the notion of any kind of engagement. Um, to editorialize for a moment, I know I personally was frustrated that the level of conversation we're having now was never really invited by those who were quick to speak out, but there is a, a debate to be had. Um, but um, yeah, so I, I, I think the, and it's also really helpful just to sort of understand sort of internally, right? There's uh, there, there's a lot of, I'm curious your thoughts as well too. You know, there's a lot of the, there was a lot of talk at the time and still to this day to abolish ICE, to, to defund it and things like that. From what I'm hearing from you, part of the problem is, is actually the lack of capacity to begin with is, is the overstretched and just the sheer volume of folks coming coming across. But um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, just some of your reactions to that. Well, um... In terms of what, in terms of the the stress with respect, yeah, to, you know, yeah, and the, yeah, and the need for border control is this something where we should abolish uh, border uh, border control law enforcement measures, whether it's ICE, CBP, yeah. uh, other things, or um, reimagine it or strengthen it as it currently exists? I don't know if you have yeah. feelings. Well, I you know I actually don't believe in open borders. I believe in the integrity of national borders but accompanied by a humane and a very effective process for accepting immigrants. The country is about immigration. The whole history of the United States is that. And I think, you know, it's like, it's like abolishing, uh, defunding police uh, or shutting down and eliminating ICE. That's, you know, it's like a, talk from a political, certain political perspective, which is not something I, I agree with. That said, I agree with reforming uh, ICE, which is the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency that has gotten a lot of, uh, m much of a deserved bad press. But I'm a believer in reforming, whether it's police or ICE or immigration policies. And by the way, it is really, if you, if you start peeling away the layers, we have a lot of work to do on immigration policies in the United States. Uh, from this kind of craziness with building the wall that Trump wanted to the cruelty of some of these agencies dealing with immigrants to the inefficiencies of the legal systems that are in place to try to make this process do what it needs to do, which is to kind of uh, allow immigrants to come here seeking asylum or seeking work or seeking to better themselves or, or help change America, that's all good. But we don't have a system yet in place. But yeah, the controversies around ICE were legitimate controversies and they had plenty to fix. But uh, you know, at the moment, I think there's, uh, we have to think about the big picture and how we're gonna make the whole system better. 
Yeah, um, I'm going to ask you a, a leading question here. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they all were leading questions. Yeah, to a certain extent, <laughs> they are. Um, no, but, uh, you know, we look at sort of the pressures that are driving this um, and sort of immigration policy that's been stuck in the mud for a while and, and just increasing numbers of people trying to cross, increasing pressures at home. When we look at climate change, when we look at the instabilities that that it may be driving as well, too, what is the forecast for these uh, uh, for these immigration challenges, uh, do we see it staying the same? Um, you know, um, how, how, well, do you, how do you see this intersecting? Well, this is a this is a very uh, momentous period in our history in the United States, but also globally. So, when we talk about the border crisis on the southwest border of the U.S., we're talking a lot about these immigrants and wannabe immigrants from the, these uh, Northern Triangle states. Um, but the big picture of immigration, it has a much broader uh, reality, which includes things like, we already have, right, as we speak right now, 665 to 70 million people who are either internally displaced in their home countries or actual refugees in other countries. And we are on the brink of a rapidly deteriorating situation around climate and climate change, global warming and the consequences of it that may accelerate uh, the need for people to move from wherever they are to someplace else. So I think we're just seeing the beginning of a wave of crises related to immigration forced by war. You think about the Syrians that have left Syria over the last 10 years. Uh, and are all over the world, uh, other wars, civil strife, climate change, uh, and people trying to escape the nightmares of hostility that they're experiencing in their own countries. You add that all up, and what you have is, oh my God, a whole new uh, impetus to, to try to figure this out. I, I think this is one of the most vexing and complex policy challenges that's going to face the U.S. or any other country for that matter. What are we going to do? Do we want completely open borders where anybody just come on in? No. Do we want completely closed borders where we go from a country of immigrants to a country of nobody gets here that we don't want here? I, I don't, I, we're going to have to find the right place in this morass here that will guide immigration policies and even if we wrote down on a piece of paper what those policies are, we have irreconcilable differences of perspective on this uh, from one end of the political spectrum to the other, from one ideology to the other polar opposite ideology. So how we're going to actually uh, implement new policies, pass the appropriate laws, uh, is a mystery to me. I don't know what, what the hell we're going to do, but it's not going to be an easy fix. And it probably won't happen in uh, anytime soon. Yep. Yeah. So I I think also I, I appreciate that point as well too because I, I think one thing in the conversation we've been having too is just the sheer complexity of this and often uh, you know the the punditry brings it down to a soundbite or a position or, or a hashtag um, and that the, it, it's really just much more three dimensional than that. Um, yeah. yeah. So you had mentioned before sort of the, the Trump administration's this kind of policy of cruelty um, and this 
notion of really trying to disincentivize it and, and sort of the, the faults in that and, and talk briefly about how the Biden administration is approaching this differently. But I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more. Uh, we're obviously seeing this ramp up quite a bit. It, it's some of um, some early non-COVID related pressure on the administration and, and uh, unfavorable attention to a certain extent. So I, I'm curious, what, do you, what are you seeing in terms of how the administration is approaching this and what do you expect the next uh, roughly four years or so to look like? Well, if I can take the risk of causing half your listeners to never listen to you again, I would say this. The, in my opinion, this last four years under the Donald Trump psycho administration, uh, the United States fell to a very, very dark place where, and as I said before, these immigration problems did not arise with Donald Trump. What did arise with John Donald Trump is the use of cruelty as policy, overtly, actively, publicly, uh, no shame saying that we're going to separate children from families. We are going to do it and we're going to do it because we don't want you and your children to come to America. That was an aberration. We, a lot, there have been a lot of screw ups with all kinds of policies, including immigration policy over the last couple of decades. But this is what we saw with Trump was really unprecedented to use an overused uh, expression. Just was I mean, there were plenty of cruel things that the United States has done, but never with pride or openness or, you know, uh, flaunting it. It was always about, you know, maybe, you know, a lot of mistakes that we've made have been sort of in the background, undercover, military and so on. Now, now comes the Biden administration with a commitment to using a humane perspective to, fix, to fixing broken systems and policies that needed to be that need to be changed. But at some point, the Biden administration, it's sort of happening right now, is saying, yeah, well, and, and President has said, President Biden has said this, we don't want, we don't want any more people coming. And okay, well, what does that mean exactly? It means that we want to take, he wants to take a pause and figure out the right policies and uh, improve our asylum evaluations and, and so forth. He, he wants to do it differently, but he's got to do something because we, we, meaning the United States, is simply not equipped. We don't have the capacity to deal with this, this gushing flow of immigrants coming across the Southwest border of the United States. So it's hard to answer right now uh, about what is going to happen by the Biden administration. I'm pretty sure we won't see that kind of cruelty that we saw during the Trump administration. Uh, but on the other hand, there's no quick fixes here either. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of work to do, a lot of work to do actually internally in those triangle countries where we're going to try to help them um, deal with the root causes and make those neighborhoods not so dangerous. And not so threatening to children and families. And actually, Trump, Trump administration was doing some of that. Biden's going to hopefully step that up. We see deals being cut with Mexico uh, to try to get their help in keeping more people from flooding across the border and so on. But I'm telling you, Jeff, this is going to be 
a long time in coming in terms of a fix for what we're talking about. No, I, I uh, appreciate that and kind of the level setting here that, uh, you know, it, uh, these are large problems that require large complex solutions that won't come overnight. Um, and it's, it's just gonna take a lot of great thinking going into it and more importantly, that turning into action. I appreciate everything that, that you know, you've done in this regard and are doing and just helping us to sort of see all the different dimensions uh, of this. Um, and of course you're involved not only uh, with this issue but also with a lot of ongoing pandemic uh, um, support. Yeah. Um, you know, I failed to mention in the introduction to your role as an analyst for MSNBC and NBC News. So uh, folks can obviously find you uh, on TV um, on, as, a, as an analyst on, on different shows. But if folks wanna follow your work either with this regard or within broader um, disaster resilience and, and the needs of children, um, what's, what's the best way for them to find you other than uh, you know, on, <laughs> on TV? Yeah, so um, I have a pretty active uh, Twitter account. So it's at Irwin Redliner MD. Um, and that's uh, fine. I also have uh, uh, a website that, that carries the stuff that I've uh, been writing and that's erwinredliner.org. Uh, uh, so that's it. And, uh, and people can find me if they have direct uh, questions or um, points they'd like to make. I'm happy to get emails from people too. Wonderful. Well, um, and we'll be sure and link to those in the podcast description. But um, uh, for now, just thanks so much for joining. Thanks for sharing all these different perspectives. I think uh, um, for both sides of the aisle, folks will be able to pick out things that they like and also pick out reasons they don't like you. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, hey, story of my life, Jeff. You know, like, like, so, yeah, yeah. But hey, I, I, I'm very grateful that uh, you took the time to talk through this here. And uh, um, of course, anytime before. Bye bye. Great. Another big, big thank you to Dr. Erwin Radlaner for joining us today, for talking through the complexities of this issue and really helping us to, to look at it uh, as the whole issue rather than some uh, uh, oversimplified talking point, which so often dominates uh, <laughs> the, the news and the conversations. But that's what we're all about here at Disaster Politics Podcast. We're all about trying to understand the problem from multiple angles and embrace the whole and understand what are the, what are the structures that are driving these challenges that we have and how can we, um, through better understanding that, kind of change the trajectory towards a more resilient and more equitable future. So thank you to Dr. Redliner for the conversation today, to all of our guests for continuing this legacy, and to all of you for participating, whether you're listening, whether uh, joining the conversation on Twitter or elsewhere. On Twitter, we're at DisasterPolitik. Want to send us a note, want to be on the show, uh, send us an email at DisasterPoliticsPodcast at gmail.com. In the meantime, uh, I hope everyone's doing well out there, doing the best we can as we get through this pandemic. Hope to have more shows coming your way in the near future. In the meantime, whatever you're doing, stay safe out there. Mm-hmm.